Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello and welcome to Capital Weekly's regular podcast. I'm John Howard and I am joined by my friend and colleague, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Rob Karinke of Grassroots Lab. He handles the Southern California Edge. It's a digital communications, political strategy company, kind of a lot of things rolled into one. Rob, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, yeah, we're, our firm is kind of other duties as a sign, so this fits right in. <laughs> uh, you know, at the risk of beating a dead horse, but it's so easy to do. We wanted to talk about the recall again. Uh, and there's a lot still coming in about the vote, of course, hasn't been officially tabulated yet. Still, some ballots are coming in. The count is proceeding. What's your take on the recall? You know, it's fine. I know early on, you're very suspicious. Did that change during the period at all? Or are you still as suspicious now after the vote as you were then? Well, I thought I staked out some pretty bold ground, uh, you know, a couple months ago saying I thought this was probably going to be a blowout. But when I said blowout, I thought it was going to maybe be like 10 or 12 points. I thought it would be a double digit loss for the recall. Um, And, you know, evidently, even I left it far short. Um, You know, what's the I don't know how many ballots are still left out. But, you know, I mean, it's, you know, 20, 25 points. I mean, it it was obviously it was demolished. And um, I was always skeptical of uh, of those early polls. I mean, some was the quality of the polls themselves. But I also just felt that, you know, once the tens of millions of dollars that Newsom or the anti-recall efforts, however you want to characterize it, you know, were brought to bear, I was looking at it as like, you know, they could spend a million dollars a day um, on just one thing, you know, vote no. Um, so that, that's one component. But just like the I did not buy the electoral math of the recall that even in a really extremely favorable scenario for Republicans, if you think about it, there's only like five and a half million registered Republicans, I think a little bit less than that, in a really sort of like maximal turnout environment, like if they get general election turnout and really strong party discipline, it's only going to give them like four million votes, right? So there's another 18 million votes floating around out there. And even in a scenario of like utter collapse on the Dem side, I ran scenarios that said Republicans could have like a 30 point turnout advantage against Democrats and still lose. If the if the Democrat excuse me if the Republicans had somebody they could go to, uh, a well known actor with stature, mm-hmm. would that have given them you think a shot at this thing? Somebody like um, I don't know, like a Charlton Heston, Tom Hanks uh, kind of thing, or no? I think you'd need someone who's a real box office hit, like an action movie kind of star. <laughs> I was. <laughs> yeah. uh, What's so I, I was wondering about kind of like the Schwarzenegger dynamic, and I was actually, you know, kind of workshopping, like, who would who would even fit that profile? I mean, Arnold had universal name ID, right? I mean, it's practically like LeBron James, you know, um, jumping in. And LeBron James taken? Can he run for the Republican uh, gubernatorial uh, candidate next in 2020? Maybe they could get Kanye. I don't know. Maybe Kanye would do it. Um the thing about Arnold, though, um, you know, and I was not a, a supporter of, of Arnold at the time, <clears throat> back in 2003, I mean, I don't remember who I voted for, Gallagher, maybe, but, um, you know, Schwarzenegger had some bona fides, you know, he was, he was certainly a big star and had a lot of star power, and he sort of hammed it for the camera, certainly, he's like smashing cars and stuff like that, but he also had some bona fides, he had been involved in sort of public life, civic life, I think he could be taken seriously enough. 
but you know, he also had just like that supercharged personality and charisma. Um, and then also I think ran a smarter campaign, you know, he zeroed in on these sort of kitchen table things like, you know, the VLF and things like that. That was pretty tangible. Um, I think the case they prosecuted against Gray Davis with the, um, you know, the energy crisis or whatever, that's also something that hit everybody. One thing I was thinking about with this recall is COVID is a thing that, you know, normally was supposed to impact everyone. And certainly it did to a degree, but, you know, some people much more than others, um, when the power goes off, I mean, everybody is affected, you know, and so that's something I think really hit everyone back in, in the early 2000s. You know, it looked like uh, during that first recall that Davis had so much baggage handling mm-hmm. the electricity crisis and the campaign stuff and the pay to play and telling the legislator legislature to implement my vision and sort of, and he didn't have a whole lot of friends. And, and Arnold had a political organization, I think, sort of set up and running and waiting to go. A lot of Wilsonians in there that were with his campaign and helping with communications and doing, you know, he had a lot of help on that campaign too. Certainly. I mean, it was a highly professional operation and you had, you know, a Republican consulting class at the time that was, you know, knew what winning looked like in this state, I guess, is the way I would characterize it. Um, And, you know, I don't want to try not to disparage other consultants or whatever, but you you certainly didn't have that class of folk involved in this recall, certainly not among the front runners, you know, and it, it really felt like Elder's campaign, you know, was playing for clicks and it had this kind of performative aspect. They didn't tack anywhere near where you would need to be to make an appeal to a broad slide to a plurality of California voters, certainly. Whereas, you know, someone like Falconer, who I think has, you know, good people behind him and um, is certainly a serious, uh, you know, politician, a serious guy, um, as he just doesn't have much of a place clearly in the in the GOP electorate. Um, and his appeal to moderates, if anything, is, a, is an anathema to the GOP base. There's a discussion now in both houses about changing the recall process, coming up with some plan, submitting it to voters. Do you have any thoughts about what would make this better? What, what's wrong with our, the way we do it now and can we improve it? So I was talking to a, a pollster and I haven't been able to verify the number. He told me there was something like 50 active recall efforts in the state right now, like up and down. So, I mean, there's the state recall rules, um, but there's, you know, the, the local the local stuff and it is happening everywhere. I mean, there's numerous ones in L.A. Some of them have just come up short. Others are still active. Um you know, basically all the way up to Shasta County, you've got you've got efforts and there was a big spread. Bearback wrote a story in the in the Times this week about the DA recall in Napa. I mean, it's kind of just everywhere. And there's this sort of um, you know, I don't know, there's something in the water about this. Um, you know, I think that, parties, by the way, do you, do you see it as a buy? I mean, are there reaps trying to get Dems out, Dems trying to get reaps out? Dems trying to get Dems out. I mean, is it or is this pretty much? Oh, it's, it's all over. You know, in L.A., you have uh, the recall effort against Mike Bonin. I mean, these are West Side Democrats. There are no Republicans in West L.A. Um, and Bonin has you know, really gotten himself sideways over the homeless issue. Bonin's, you know, impeccable, progressive, you know, bona fides and credentials there. But he's you know, there's a, a very legitimate recall effort against him there um, and a serious one. Up in Shasta County, you have three Republican uh, boards of supervisors um, trying to be in, you know, in a fully Republican county. And there are people to their right that are trying to recall them because they have, you know, bowed to Gavin Newsom or, or followed state mandates. So it is not purely a Republican against uh, Democrat thing at the local level, certainly, although there are some of those like the Gascon recall would be an example of that. 
one thing that I kind of find really fascinating, a place where I would really critique the recall process personally is, you know, someone wins an election, like you would say, George Gascon. And, you know, disclosure, like I worked for on the Jackie Lacey side of that. I did not vote for George Gascon, but he wins that election. Immediately, there's a recall effort, you know, before he's even taken office. That's been the case with some of these local officials, too. I do not believe the recall, the recall process was put in place or ought to be there to referend the results of an election, like in the immediate, right? It should be sort of reserved for malfeasance or a way to legitimately remove a bad actor. You know, if a sitting an incumbent and governor gets removed, uh, should there even be any second step about a replacement candidate? Why not remove, if that's the will of the people, remove the governor and the lieutenant governor steps up, like happened in New York? That seems like, I, frankly, I don't understand why they didn't write that in the first place. That seems like the logical step. And, you know, you made the, the exact word malfeasance. Recall should be an example of a governor that is either corrupt or incompetent. And theory, the lieutenant governor should not be corrupt or incompetent, and they should ascend to the to the thing. That's why they're there. It's one of the reasons they're there. I mean, yeah, it would it would probably put a lot more attention on the lieutenant governor's races. You know, I mean, if they say you're one heartbeat, you're one recall away from <laughs> from the governor's office. Um, you know, it does seem like that having this two question, this sort of two step thing where then the governor cannot appear on the list of options. You know, I try and give voters a lot of credit, but that is a complicated and sort of arcane system. It feels dated. I think the threshold is probably too low. But I think another thing, you know, I don't have a lot of compliments for the Newsom recall effort, but it, insofar as I can tell, it's one of the more successful volunteer signature gathering drives I've ever seen. I've worked on a lot of statewide ballot measures. I've worked on a statewide ballot measure, I think, every cycle since 02. And every time somebody tries to start saying we're going to qualify with volunteers, I mean, that's a joke. Like, you can't do that, right, at the statewide ballot. But these guys kind of showed that you can. And they got a lot of volunteer sig signatures. And I think that that effort sort of spun off, like, the gas tax repeal and other things that have been unsuccessful. But they built a legitimate ground effort that was able to meet that threshold. The second question to me is, is that threshold still too low because now the system is sort of being weaponized and abused. You know, the threshold for gathering signatures or the threshold for what you have to do to appear on the ballot as a recall, as a, as a challenger or the filing fees or, or all of the above? Or? I would say all of the above, but, you know, I, I was referring to to qualify a recall. It, it, it may yet be too low. The... Um, I think one thing, and I, I, this is another argument I made about why I thought the recall would end up being a blow up, because as we saw in 2003, the, the, uh, the threshold to enter on question two, right, as a replacement candidate is so low, of course, you're going to get YouTube people and Gallagher and Gary Coleman and Angeline and, and the, you know, all of these people, because it's such an easy way to start to get, you know, free media and free press and just, you know, take your ride, buy the ticket and take the ride. It, uh, it, it makes inevitable a sort of circus atmosphere, right? And the press, you know, God love them, you know, tend to treat a lot of these folks with legitimacy. You look at Kevin Paffrath and, you know, the guy's not a legitimate actor in California politics. I don't think there was a political math to say he was ever going to be governor. But if you ask a reporter, they're like, well, I mean, he's the top polling Democrat on the replacement question. Some polls say this recall is close. How can we not cover this guy, give him oxygen and put him on stage? That's really a tough question. I think, you know, looking at it from my perspective, from the outside, uh, it just seemed like coverage was awful. 
it, I mean, there was a lot of great coverage, a lot of bad coverage, but the worst part of it, I think, was this sort of breathless horse race drama that sort of made them equivalent candidates when they weren't. And they had no traction, no political background, no traction. It didn't seem to me that they had a, it didn't seem to me that there was a strong organization with political experience that was putting anything together. Just, I, I really do agree with you. I thought it was from the very beginning, I was very suspicious. And I, I'm happy to say I didn't have a scintilla of evidence at all. It was just strictly a, you know, just well, a to the pants, you know, thought, you know. I always trust your gut, John. <laughs> Look at uh, the, the Caitlyn Jenner coverage. Caitlyn Jenner in the early days of the recall, I would say was probably the most covered candidate. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know if she finished in the top half of the candidates. I mean, she no. she finished below, I think, four generic Democrats that no one could name. Uh and got almost no traction at all, yet you would never have had that sense from the breathless coverage that she received in the early days of the recall. And I mean, I guess maybe call me a cynic, but I never thought that Caitlyn Jenner was seriously running for governor. I thought that Caitlyn Jenner was running for attention and to drive uh, eyes to her TV show. Uh, And I felt like more of California's political reporters should have treated it that way. Yeah. And, you know, I have nothing but the utmost respect and reverence for our California press corps. I would say what drove me into um, wanting to sort of speak out on what I thought was, you know, bad coverage of this was largely driven by the national and East Coast press, um, you know, who covered covered Jenner like wall to wall. And, uh, you know, she's one Fox News is one thing, but I mean, she's all these Fox News appearances, but, um, you know, covered by, you know, the newspapers of record on the East Coast. And, you know, I think it's it's indicative of something that is larger wrong with our state and national politics is it's performative nature of politics. And it's the notion that, you know, an audience is currency in the political realm. And that may well be a reality. And it's one I have to deal with, I suppose, you know, in, in my day to day political consulting life. But um, there's also like a a legitimacy factor that was just utterly missing from Jenner. And I think that you look at people like, well, Caitlyn Jenner's got really everyone knows who Caitlyn Jenner is, just like Schwarzenegger and Schwarzenegger never ran for office or whatever. But that's where I go back to the fact that Arnold had um, a background in civic life. Um, You know, he had married into a political family. He had connections to people that could, you know, grant him legitimacy in that world. And indeed, he was a serious candidate. I mean, Jenner, I'm straining to remember anything she said, you know, other than um, I think she didn't even remember who if she'd voted or who she voted for. Or she was talking about, you know, regular Californians have water cooler talks like she was talking to people like her neighbor at the private jet or whatever, you know, on the tarmac. Yeah. And I want to say that Schwarzenegger had actually run a ballot measure prior to uh, getting elected governor. So So he knew what he was doing and he had people around him who very much knew what he was doing. You know, was your uh, was your business partner, Mike Madrid, part of that team or was he in D.C. at that point? No. In fact, Mike and I were working at that time at the League of Cities on, on Prop 1A. That's where uh, that's where Mike and I met. And in fact, uh, yeah, I moved to Sacramento right when the recall had qualified. Like on my first day walking to work past the Capitol, I saw Gallagher smash a watermelon. I was like, well, I've really arrived. Welcome to California. <laughs> hey, uh, Rob, you know the counties. And in fact, you do a uh, daily county newsletter. And I was looking at the counties on the recall, the votes in the counties, and clearly there's a urban-rural split. Many, many counties, many with not 
many votes, but uh, Calusa, Alpine, Trinity, Calaveras, Amador, Inyo, uh, Modoc. I mean, you go on and on, and they all favored by varying degrees, by varying margins, usually substantial margins. They all favored recalling Newsom. Did you did that percolate up when your coverage of the counties and talking to county folks was that pretty obvious from the get go? Well, so literally, when you guys reached out to me to do this, I had just closed all my recall tabs. You know, on my computer, I had just put everything away. But um, earlier this week on Monday, I gave a presentation where I actually took the county numbers at that time, and I kind of mapped them because I find like the you know the Secretary of State map, you know, which is just a binary, you know, county for county against kind of thing, is not that informative. Um, you know, when I was raised in California politics, we used to talk about the fish hook. Right. That you would have in order for like a conservative candidate or indeed a conservative cause to win in the state, you have to run up the score in the Central Valley all the way down the spine of the state. And then that fishhook would kind of come through San Diego and Orange County and then poke back into the uh, Central Coast. Right. That was the map that you would always see. And that's the pattern you would see. And we still see it today, like when Prop 15 fails, split roll or you have like a tax measure, that fish hook still kind of starts to resurface. And you could see it a little bit um, in the recall at a candidate level, you know, in the partisan world that we live in now, like San Diego is like a blue county, like that part of the fish hook is dead and Orange County is largely dead too. But I was really interested in how the recall did in the Valley as you raise, you know, this recall was really kind of like birthed in the state of Jefferson, right? In those far Northern counties where they had these enormous margins in terms of registered voters who signed the recall. And Indeed, the numbers there are really, really high, you know, up in the in the in the attic of California. But in the Central Valley, it's still really close, you know, in Fresno County, Merced County. I mean, it's it's basically on the verge of, you know, 50 50. Same is true of the Inland Empire. And I think that one of the underrated stories, it's not really going to shift our politics that much in the state, but a really fascinating story to me is the bluing of the Sierra. Um, a lot of those Sierra counties are now full of Bay Area and LA expats. Inyo County, I think, had the largest swing um, R to D in uh, of any county in the country in the presidential election. And I think, well, they barely sort of favored the recall. Inyo County is trending to be a blue place. Bishop is, you know, there's like half a dozen Enviro groups based in Bishop. Um, you know, they're basically all like little, it's like, South, it's the South Lake Tahoe-ization of all those <laughs> mountain communities, right? I mean, they're That's turning blue. So anyway, my bottom line here is that but the fish hook, it's, it's kind of like Swiss cheese and Fresno's trending blue. Um, and I think the other big takeaway of that too is if the recall were to have prevailed, it was going to need good breaks in the Latino community. And this thing being, you know, kind of a 50-50 proposition in Fresno sort of it tells you right there that didn't happen. You think we're going to see a lot more recalls going forward than we've had, I think, 55 against governors. One was successful since 1911, I think the number is. 55, yeah. five, one successful now, this one, another unsuccessful. Um, but whether, whether it will sink in or not, um, you know, I think the other thing that you have to uh, you have to note is the extension granted to the recall by the judge because of COVID probably made an enormous difference in, in the qualification here. And that's that's kind of a once in a blue moon kind of thing, not going to happen very often with the thresholds where they are. You can whip up that four million, you know, Republican base in the state. You can whip them up and get those signatures, and you can go to Modoc and Alturas and and Redding and so forth, and you can run up a lot of signatures and a lot of margin there, and maybe get towards qualifying. I think, you know, I'm not a GOP consultant. I think it's going to be increasingly difficult to fund 
these statewide efforts that are partisan, and they would probably argue that it wasn't a partisan effort, um, but clearly it was. Um, and so I don't know how you put the money together to run a legitimate statewide campaign on this kind of issue. I think on tax issues, you certainly can. You know, on ballot issues, you certainly can. But like a recall and indeed like a gubernatorial candidacy for next year. I mean, how are they going to go raise money? Well, and that's, you know, we talked to Ann Dunsmore, who ran. Uh, that would be that would be the perfect person to talk to, to ask <laughs> what she said. She basically said that uh, the 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 extension granted by the judge was what made this happen you know that mm-hmm. you know, that's when it got real was that extension allowed them more time to do this so i think that's an accurate assessment that that was kind of the crucial moment uh for for the recall campaign the other thing that really bothers me about the narrative built around it and again you know the national press and i suppose to a degree here is that it felt underreported to me because what the recall sort of became evidence of is oh there's this disquiet out in california you know and is this evidence of you know people turning on democrats or turning on one party rule and so forth and you know i think that we could talk you know on many podcasts about the you know disquiet among democrats here but it's not like oh, we want to throw out like democratic leaders. (laughs) I don't think that's what, I don't think that's an accurate read on California politics at all. And so noting the sort of, you know, loophole or, or, you know, gift that they were given by the judge in order to qualify, I felt like should have been a key part of every reporting on this. Gary South agreed with you, by the way. What's that? Gary South agreed that that should have been part of every story. I'm sure. (laughs) And I mean, what a, um, I love Gary and, you know, it was great to see, you know, him have an opportunity to um, express his strident opinion so often and so visibly. <laughs> what did, you know, talking about consultants, what do political consultants who are Republicans, what do GP and consultants, uh, GOP consultants do now? How do they get well-paying clients? It seems like this is an occupation that's, this is a facet of the political consulting is shrinking kind of quickly in California, given a lot of other things. God forbid, right? Uh, you know, there's still there's still plenty to fight over, right? I think one thing I have been pointing out is, you know, the pieces of a successful case against either Gavin Newsom personally or against you know one party rule in California, the the building blocks of that are laying around. I mean, homelessness is obviously an enormous issue. You know, I think even the wildfires are becoming a little bit more politicized, and you know, climb, you know, how we deal with rising seas and the wildfires and so forth, that's going to become an economic and household issue to the people that live in those areas. Um, you know, the housing issues, SB9 and so forth. I think that's going to be an enormous issue and a big problem, honestly, for a lot of contested legislative races in suburban parts of the state where people are going to be upset about that. So there's all these pieces laying around where you can run a successful campaign against Democratic candidates. Um, the, The issue for Republicans, I would say, is that they're not producing the kind of candidates who can pick those pieces up and build them into a narrative that people want to buy, right? Um, you know, as I heard one person say, you know, you talk about the disaster of, of San Francisco or Venice with homelessness and everything. And the, you know, there's like poop on the street and all of this stuff. And it's talked about, but, you know, they're not going to vote for a Republican <laughs> picking that over a Republican. And that's, that's all the evidence. So what do GOP consultants do? Well, one, again, I think that they can sell donors and candidates on those issues, right? We have to fix this issue, issue N, and you're the person to do it. And they could probably get that funded at the statewide level. I don't think it's a good use of money, but they could do it. 
The other thing, and, you know, again, I mean, there's plenty of room to grift, right? I mean, the Caitlyn Jenner thing, I think end to end was a grift. I think that the Larry Elder thing, while he's basically now seized control of the GOP, you know, mantle here, I mean, that's also pretty much a grift. He's not trying to win in state. He's trying to be the leader of a conservative clicktocracy in the state where he can drive, you know, clicks and views and so forth. And there's a lot of money to be made there, sadly. Hey, Rob, one last question. The um, we, And we've asked this of a couple other people, too. I wanted to get your take on what, talking about Republicans, what is it that the state party should do? Uh, what can they do to get more and essentially take over their own party and not leave it to a fringe candidate? Yeah, so... I think part of you know the, the promise, the you know, the failed promise, I suppose, of, of Kevin Falconer is that he's cut from the cloth of Republicans who are successful in blue states on the East Coast, right? You know, Maryland, Massachusetts, and so forth. He's you know, we call him Mitt Romney on the sea, if you will, right? Um <laughs> The issue is, is that that is so far out of balance with what the Republican base is looking for in California. And if I were to sort of take a look, you know, from the other side, friendly advice, however you want to take it, um, you know, they feel so underrepresented, Republicans in the state. And you see that in the separatist movement in the North state and and the way, you know, um, you know, even pretty moderate Republicans out and say like Rancho Cucamonga might feel like they feel underrepresented, ignored and so forth. And that has led to an erosion of the party, you know, um, and, you know, the rise of the little bit more like pugilistic extremist candidates that drives away moderates. And now they're just so far apart. Right. But they, those folks, right. Who are this sort of like, you know, call it a Trumpian brand, right? They see success across the country. And indeed, you know, that may bear success nationally in the midterms and even in the next presidential, right? So why change, right? It's not a recipe for success in California, but it is the recipe that is giving Republicans the wins that they have been getting nationally. So I think it's a very difficult line to walk. You do elevate Kevin Falconer, who's, you know, could never get the nomination of his own party probably now? Um, Or do you go with someone like Larry Elder who echoes, you know, this Trumpian politics and be the outpost? Okay, fair enough. Rob Kariki, thank you so much. Tim, are we going to segue into another feature right now or how do we do that? Yes, and I think uh, think Rob is going to join us. All right, I made it it to the lightning round. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. The last part of the program, we like to we, we sort of pose the question, who had the worst week in California politics? And as we were chatting about that earlier, you mentioned some stuff going on in Shasta County, which sounded amazing. So we thought you'd let, let you step up for that. What is going on in Shasta County is the most bananas political story in the state right now, bar none. There is a recall effort by, uh, you know, some sort of far right, um, you know, indeed, like some of them are actual militia members. Um, but it, there's been this confluence of the sort of uh, state of Jefferson, uh, separatist militia types with anti-vax folks um, to recall uh, three Republican uh, boards of supervisors in Shasta County. Their signature deadline is next week. Uh, The recall has sued the county for an extension because they said that there were too many smoky days um, during their recall window and they they want more time to gather. 
um, as you know, fortune would have it, an, an actual fire has now broken out in Shasta County, sadly, and there are evacuations in Redding. Um, this, the figurehead of this recall uh, is a gentleman named Carlos Zapata. He has started a documentary that's called Red, White, and Blueprint, and they have been airing on YouTube these well-financed, well-produced um, you know, uh, YouTube clips about how they're taking the county back. Well, he assaulted a bartender, allegedly, um, a couple months ago. He's been standing trial for that assault. Uh, the jury went into, into deliberations this week, but then uh, several of the jurors came down with COVID and they've now held jury deliberations over for two more weeks, which not... <laughs> Deliberate on Zoom? <laughs> I don't know if they could deliberate on Zoom. Um, but, you know, I mean, this is from a faction of folks that believe that COVID is not real, right? And now, you know, COVID has, has shut down his, um, uh, his the jury deliberations. And in the realm of COVID actually being real, uh, two and potentially even three of the uh, supervisors uh, there have had COVID in the last two weeks. Oh, um, you've got a shadowy funder of this effort, a gentleman who last fall wrote a $100,000 check to one of the uh, supervisor candidates, right? It was before the new law went into place. Um, he is the sole listed funder of the recall effort as well, major funder. Um, it is just, you know, a carnival of things that are going on there week by week. And that the Times has, has covered this, uh, LA Times has covered it a number of times. Um, you've had folks storming the boards of supervisor, like literally January 6th style. They canceled a county board meeting and they stormed in there and they filmed their documentary from the dais. You know, um, it's it's a wild it's wild what's going on there. And hopefully for that county, you know, this uh, recall falls short next week and they can return to some normalcy because they do have real issues, fire and so forth. But, you know, I mean, who's having the worst week? I mean, the whole county probably. But Mr. Zapata, it's at or near the top. That sounds a lot better than the one we had been talking about. It seems to me. <laughs> so, Local yeah, politics. I mean, it's the best stuff. You it's know, like a, that L.A. Times story you were talking about was great. I think that was Anita Chabria. I, at least I saw one of this feature uh, that was amazingly well written. And it just got it just gave a picture up there. It seemed sinister and ominous and strange. and You name it. Seems like that anyway. <laughs> well, you know, again, these recalls, you know, they're they're pugilistic by their nature and they're, they're just enormously divisive because what happens is the people that advance the recall, they're so, um, you know, they're out so far in a limb that they go farther and farther to try and qualify it. Right. And we see that we saw that in the Napa story. I mean, they dredged up stuff from, you know, this district attorney, her brother had had some issues in his past and they dredged that up. I mean, it's just the worst kind of politics, I think. Um, and so I don't know what the right policy prescription is to see less of them. But I think that that would probably help our our politics here in the state. Fair enough. Rob Karinke, thank you so much. Thanks for the great conversation. Thanks for your time and joining us today. Uh, All right. Tim, thank you, guys. Yeah. Tim, thank you. Thanks, John. And we will see you next time around. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.